if I were voting, would have put Ohio State at three and TCU at four and had Georgia against TCU in Atlanta and I would have had the rematch of Michigan-Ohio State out in Arizona uh, because I think as the number one seed that uh, Georgia deserves the weakest of the four playoff teams. Uh, But I don't think that it's a massive difference. I still think Georgia is going to play Michigan and I think Georgia will win the national championship because I think Georgia's the most complete team. I think Georgia and Michigan are the two most complete teams. And I think that's who we'll see playing in the national championship in L.A. Um, Alabama fans are mad at me uh, because I pointed out that they didn't deserve to be in the playoff. Alabama didn't have great wins. Now, I've been saying this for years, and I would just reiterate it today. The college football playoff selection is as much art as it is science. And what I mean by that is you have to balance two competing interests, most deserving and best. Do I think that Alabama is one of the four most talented teams in college football? Yes. By the way, Clemson probably is one of the four most talented teams in college football too, arguably. But you can't just take the most talented team. You have to balance best and most deserving. Alabama could have gone 7-5 and five this year. They could have lost to Texas A&M. They could have lost to Texas. They could have lost to Ole Miss. The committee, uh, sorry, Vegas, would still have them favored as uh, against TCU even if they were 7-5 and five, because Alabama's more talented than TCU. But you couldn't put a 7-5 and five team into the playoff because they wouldn't be remotely deserving. Alabama played two good teams, good being defined as winning nine or more games, top 15 caliber teams this year, Tennessee and LSU. They lost to both of them. TCU lost a close overtime game uh, against Kansas State. Max Duggan played phenomenally well. uh, And as a result, Alabama didn't deserve to be in the playoff. Ohio State, I don't think really deserved to be in the playoff either. Tennessee didn't deserve to be in the playoff. Penn State didn't deserve to be on the, in the playoff. Some years, there aren't actually four teams that deserve to be in the playoff. Frankly, if we just went with the BCS, this year I would be fine if Georgia and Michigan played for the national championship because Georgia and Michigan are really the only two teams that are the most deserving and the best on the year. Sometimes you get most deserving and best, and it's an easy call. Michigan versus Georgia should be the national championship game based on everything that's happened so far in the regular season. Ohio State and TCU didn't have as compelling of a case. Neither did Tennessee, neither did Alabama, neither did Penn State or Kansas State or Utah or whoever you want to toss out there. Really, there are two teams that deserve to play for the national championship this year, Georgia and Michigan. I think they will end up playing for the national championship this year. But in general, I think the college football playoff committee did a good job. Next year is the last time that we will have a four-team college football playoff. Then we'll be going to a 12-team college football playoff. What I would say in general is Big Ten and SEC eliminate divisions. The Big Ten championship game should have been Michigan-Ohio State. The SEC championship game should have been Georgia-Tennessee. I don't know that the outcome changes, but LSU and Purdue had no business being in there. 
It makes zero sense to still have divisions in 2022. Makes even less sense to continue with divisions in 2023 or in 2024 going forward. If I could wave a magic wand for both the Big Ten and the SEC, it would be to do away with divisions. Just put the two best teams in every year uh, and let them dock it out, uh, duke it out for the uh, national championship. Okay, that's the college football playoff scenario. Big story. Biggest story by far in many of our lives as it pertains to the government, as it pertains to censorship, as it pertains to the unholy alliance between big tech and uh, social media companies. On Friday evening, Elon Musk released many different emails involved in the decision by Twitter to censor the New York Post story about Hunter Biden, his laptop, and Joe Biden's involvement in Hunter Biden's business dealings. So many interesting revelations. But to me, the biggest story here is it confirms what we had all seen, which was there is a big tech connection between uh, the Biden administration, the Biden campaign, and big tech. And that big tech was very willing to put its thumb on the scale and lead to Joe Biden winning the 2020 election against Donald Trump. I really believe that if big tech, that's Google, that's Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, if they had been fair and impartial in the way that this election took place, Donald Trump would have won in 2020. What is significant about what Elon Musk released? We now know that for beyond a shadow of a doubt that Twitter made up a bogus reason to censor the Hunter Biden story from the New York Post. We know that they later recognized that they made up a bogus reason to censor this case. And to me, this makes Watergate look like jaywalking because there is presumptive evidence that the same sort of instances were occurring inside of Facebook, inside of Google, inside of YouTube, inside of, uh, of Instagram. And I don't believe that these were limited to just this case, okay? I think the most aggressive form of censorship on behalf of big tech happened when they banned Donald Trump in the wake of January 6th and also when they banned many people who pointed out things that were inconveniently true about COVID. My solution here, and I talked to Elon Musk during a spaces that he did, is I think every government request to take down tweets involving public figures should be public. Everybody should be able to see it. I think shining that sunlight on government requests will limit the amount of demands for censorship on big tech because I think the Biden administration would be embarrassed as many of these stories go public. The fact that the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, the usual suspects did not cover, by and large, this story is indicative that they are not actually journalistic organizations. They are primarily propaganda pieces for the left wing in this country. Why does that happen? I'm writing on this in my book right now. I would argue it's because the business imperatives have moved from speaking to the largest possible audience, 
which used to be the goal of those media organizations, to primarily speaking to subscribers who want to be fed left-wing hype. And so instead of legitimate journalism, imagine this. Imagine that you own a media outlet. And on Friday evening, Elon Musk, Matt Tiabi, everybody that everything that Twitter published provides the most significant evidence of a big American company censoring a story with a political bent that has ever existed in any of our lives. That is, we have smoking gun evidence of exactly what happened inside of Twitter that led to the suppression of this story, the censorship of this story. If you are a media company, regardless of your political persuasion, Democrat, Republican, Independent, this is one of the biggest stories in the 21st century, the biggest story in my life that I'm aware of, of a major American corporation making a calculated decision to align itself with one political party by banning the sharing of a story on a bogus uh, uh, a bogus censorship standard, which they were arguing, oh, it's a hacked materials. Come on. The Pentagon Papers were hacked. Many different stories. WikiLeaks was hacked. Many different the Hillary Clinton emails were hacked. Many different stories originate from provinces that may not be the most spectacular in terms of their legality doesn't mean that sunshine shouldn't still be shining on them. The fact that they didn't cover this is pretty strong evidence that many of these news outlets are not actually news outlets. They're just propagandists. And I give credit to Elon Musk for just putting this out there in the public sphere. But I got to be honest with you. What is somebody like Jeff Bezos thinking? Jeff Bezos built Amazon, a trillion-dollar company based on embracing capitalism and risk-taking and market-based economies. And then he pays $250 million for the Washington Post and curls up in the fetal position and doesn't cover one of the biggest stories that's out there. His company gets everything wrong on Russia collusion. They get virtually everything wrong with COVID. If you're Jeff Bezos, and I say this as a guy who ran a media company at OutKick and still is involved very much in running a media company, what are you doing? You've allowed your company to be taken over the Washington Post by people that you would never employ at Amazon because they're too woke and they're too dumb to work at your Amazon company. And yet you're allowing them to destroy the journalistic brand of the Washington Post. Look, I used to love the Washington Post. I went to college in Washington, D.C. Kornheiser and Wilbon had two of the funniest sports columns anywhere in the country. The Washington Post was left-leaning, but fair, by and large, before Donald Trump came into office. And since then, Jeff Bezos, your paper has become worthless. That's on you. Why do you buy a media company and become that fearful of what might end up happening that you don't clean house and actually put competent people in charge? I think it's embarrassing. And I think it's the antithesis of everything you did when you built Amazon. And there's two different paths here. 
Elon Musk, some of you may have seen the spaces that he did where he sat and took questions from people for hours, including one of them was mine. Elon Musk has no reason to need to buy Twitter. He's worth $200 billion or whatever it is, the richest man in the world. He's doing it because he believes the First Amendment and freedom of speech are such an important concept that human civilization may depend on people's ability to say exactly what they think within the limits of acceptable discourse. But when I watch the people who were employed at Twitter, Elon Musk, by and large, has fired all of them and replaced them oftentimes with no one, right? He's probably got a quarter of the employees at Twitter now that he had before, and the site seems to work fine without 75% of the employees. But allowing these diversity and inclusion woke triple-masking losers to destroy your company from the inside and stand up against everything that you believe in, as an owner, how would you allow that to happen? And I think these are such intriguing positions to contemplate that Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos have taken. And you know what? I bet if Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos had a beer together, I bet they would agree on most things. I can't imagine, personally, Choosing not to say exactly what you think because you're afraid of what some people may think about you. And if I were Jeff Bezos, I can't imagine running the Washington Post, owning a media outlet like that, and having an outlet that is actively trying to destroy American exceptionalism, that is anti-capitalist, that is riven insane by the woke employees there. Elon Musk fired them all. Every year, Amazon used to fire 10% of their employees because they didn't think they were good enough workers. Why is Jeff Bezos so afraid to put his own stamp on the Washington Post? Going forward, a lot of people said with the Twitter release, they're saying, oh, well, it was the Biden campaign. The president uh, wasn't involved yet. Well, it's going to be the Biden administration soon. We know because Jen Psaki bragged from the White House press podium that they were sending requests to take down, uh, censor different tweets and different Twitter accounts that they didn't like. In fact, Alex Berenson has already shared evidence of that occurring. But what I would say is sometimes you can get lost in the forest for what's going on here. So I want to be clear with this. We had... Miranda Devine on the radio show earlier. And I want to give you a little bit of a background about what exactly happened with this Hunter Biden laptop story. In December of 2019, the FBI got the Hunter Biden laptop. They took possession of it from the gentleman inside of that Delaware a re- computer repair shop where Hunter Biden had dropped off his computer. Didn't return, so he gave it to the FBI because he believed there was criminal activity on it. They had it for nearly a year, the FBI did. They knew that it was real. Anybody who has seen the pictures and videos and all the things that are on that laptop knew that there was no way it could be uh, Russian disinformation. There's just no way to fake all of that, all those details. So um, when you look at that, they've had it since December of 2019, in some point during the 2020 presidential uh, election, they began to uh, have access to every email 
that Rudy Giuliani was sending photos, everything else. They had uh, a subpoena, a warrant to be able to review every bit of Rudy Giuliani's uh, correspondence because they were investigating him allegedly for failing to register as a foreign agent. They knew that Rudy Giuliani had come into possession of this laptop by virtue of an email that he received in August of 2020 from this laptop guy who was sitting back and saying, why is the FBI not doing anything with the laptop that I handed off to them? Um, Then, as if that were not enough, as Rudy Giuliani shipped the story of the Hunter Biden laptop to a bunch of different media outlets, they were aware, the FBI was, that a story was coming from the New York Post based on these, uh, based on this laptop. So the FBI, during this process, is conducting weekly briefings for big tech companies in San Francisco about threats to 2020's election integrity, and they are specifically referencing the idea of Russian disinfo. So when this story hits, the Twitter team reacted as the head of security at Twitter has said under oath, with the idea being that this was Russian disinformation and they shouldn't allow this story to be shared. So the FBI knew the laptop was real. They were conducting weekly meetings to tell all the big tech companies the opposite of what they knew to be true, which was Russian disinformation potentially connected to the Biden family was coming. So when this story went up, Twitter shut it down. And they immediately allowed the idea that this was Russian disinformation to spread widely. So the question that is the most integral here, we know what happened at Twitter. Who inside of the FBI knew that this Hunter Biden laptop was real and created this rig job in effect with all the big tech companies that they knew wanted Biden to win? Who created this plan? And why have there been no consequences whatsoever for the Biden administration and for the FBI for all of these lies? Why has no one been held responsible in the FBI for seeding the lie with Twitter about the Hunter Biden laptop in the first place? These are big questions. These are significant questions. This, as I said, makes Watergate seem like jaywalking. This was a concerted collusion to rig the 2020 election. Now, let me also say this. Trump is not doing himself any favors with the way that he is responding to this story. He's not going to get put back in office, okay? There are a lot of people out there that want to have people tell them things that are not true. Trump can run in 24, but the data reflects from 22, the more you focus on 2020 and allege that there was a stolen election, the poorer you do appealing to independents and some Republicans. So if you want to win in 24, it has to be a forward-looking campaign, not a backward-looking campaign. But in the meantime, for people like me, I'm not running for any political office. I want to know every detail of what happened, and I want there to be significant consequences for those individuals who were involved in rigging the election in concert with the Biden uh, campaign and the Biden administration. That needs to happen. Our democracy demands it. 
And of course, the big irony here is that the people who spent all this time telling you that our democracy was under siege, the Washington Post literally wrote at the top of their newspaper, democracy dies in darkness. They are living in that darkness right now because they are refusing to acknowledge one of the most significant stories of censorship, of government-involved censorship, of major governmental agency-involved censorship that has ever existed in any of our lives. And they are pretending it is not significant because they don't like Donald Trump and because they were so desperate for Joe Biden to get elected. They are culpable in spreading the lie. And they still aren't covering it even when Elon Musk is releasing actual emails laying out actual facts. Hey, Clay Travis here. We'll be right back. But first, here's a word. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay. Questions that I would have for Elon Musk in the wake of this release. I talked about this some with Will Kane. Um, is Twitter enough? Can Elon Musk change the overall trajectory of American media solely by owning Twitter? Or does he need newspapers? Does he need television networks? Does he need podcasts? Does he need a larger media apparatus? Now, he may believe, and he may be correct, that Twitter itself can be the platform to allow all of that. But that is my first question going forward for Elon Musk. My second one, people say, okay, we know what the problem is. Big government colluding with big tech. How do you solve it? My number one solution, and I asked Elon Musk about this on Spaces, uh, his conversation that he was having Saturday. I was watching the SEC uh, uh, title game. And I was li- on, the, on mute while I was listening to Elon Musk talk. My number one solution would be every time the government requests that accounts be censored, that individuals be stripped of their ability to post on the platform, it all has to be public. Sunshine is the best disinfectant when it comes to government corruption. And I believe that if you are the Biden administration, and you're trying to take down James Woods, it makes you look really bad. It also elevates James Woods. And maybe my name's going to be involved in some of these takedown requests. But I believe that there needs to be a public database of every request that the Biden administration or the Trump administration or whoever is in office makes of big tech companies to take down uh, information. Now, Some takedown requests make sense, right? If somebody's threatening to kill somebody, if somebody is running uh, an account and pretending to be someone that they are not. I'm a First Amendment absolutist, but a First Amendment absolutist does not mean that there can't be some accounts taken down. So, Sunshine, letting everybody see the requests that government and government agencies are making should be all public, in my opinion. Final issue 
that comes to mind for me in the wake of the Elon Musk uh, revelations as it pertains to the Hunter Biden story. Uh, Elon keeps talking about how his audience is growing. One of the things that isn't talked about enough is how woke big advertising agencies and the buyers for big companies have become. That is, if you are a far left-wing podcast, Google, Apple, Amazon, all of them will advertise on your platform, on your show. Lots of these woke companies won't advertise in any way with the 75% of media that is not woke. My point on that is significant. You can build a great media company. Twitter could be three times as big as it is right now, but if advertisers are canceling your ability to reach their consumer because they don't approve of your robust First Amendment or freedom of speech, then the business model itself can be under attack, which ties back up with, is there a need to build a bigger network of companies that all work together. And ultimately the goal, I really believe this, ultimately the goal has to be to build your own companies instead of trying to sell advertising to other companies. In other words, what I tried to do when I lost $50,000 in pants, I was ahead of the curve here. Ultimately, you want to own the businesses that are advertising on your platform instead of having to go sell ads to uh, these other random companies, you could be selling your own product to your own audience. I think that is going to be the future for many quote-unquote conservative brands. And obviously subscribers are a big part of this. But I think, for instance, what the Daily Wire did when it came to razors was super smart. Um, I think a lot of people out there in the content business who are building big monster audiences are going to have trouble selling if they aren't in the woke community to those brands. And so building your own businesses, first of all, it creates more wealth. But secondly, it allows you to sell directly to your audience as opposed to uh, needing to go to a third party. And I'll give you another good example. I think Barstool has been smart with their gambling company. And I know they've got uh, a few other businesses also that they've spiraled out. But owning your own brands within the context of the advertisements that you provide, I think is a, uh, is a next level step that a lot of, quote, right-leaning brands are going to have to adopt going forward. So I obviously have a ton of thoughts on this. I'd love to get Elon Musk and sit down for a long-form conversation about this. I talked to Miranda Devine. I think we're going to try to do a long-form conversation discussing the New York Post story and all of its ramifications. Um, I think there are politicians, certainly. We need massive hearings uh, in the House into the Twitter big tech collusion with the Biden administration. But in particular, I want to know who made uh, the call, who ordered the code red, so to speak, inside of the FBI that we ever had those briefings going on, which created the atmosphere behind which Twitter was going to uh, then make the decision to uh, to suppress, to censor this story and its distribution. Uh, all right, much less significant. Reacting to the NFL, we've been wondering who the top contender is to step toe-to-toe with Patrick Mahomes. And 
Joe Burrow's now 3-0 and against Patrick Mahomes. Just tossing it out there. Now, Josh Allen is certainly in this team as well. Uh, I think at this point in the season, if you were going to say who are the three best young quarterbacks in the NFL, I think the trio is Burrow, Mahomes, Josh Allen. That's where I think we're headed. Right now at the halfway point of the season, I think the best three young quarterbacks, and they're all in the AFC, unfortunately for me as a Titans fan, Joe Burrow, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, I would argue, are the three best young quarterbacks. Now, Justin Herbert's good. Lamar Jackson's good. Um, There are other good young quarterbacks. But in my opinion, the gold, the silver, and the bronze right now, if I'm giving it out for young quarterbacks, Burrow, Mahomes, and Allen, you can argue about the order. I'd probably go Mahomes, gold, Allen, silver, and Burrow, bronze. Probably my guess right now but I think they're the best three young quarterbacks in the NFL. That's where I'd rank them. Jimmy G is out another season-ending injury. I argued this a few weeks ago. I think the 49ers, outside of the quarterback position, are the most talented team in the NFL. I think they have the best talent on both sides of the ball outside of the quarterback position. I don't know what they're going to do at quarterback now. Baker Mayfield may be available. There aren't a lot of great options for the San Francisco 49ers at this point in time. It is a super talented team. There are a lot of directions uh, that that team could go, but Jimmy G being out, incredibly difficult going forward to think how exactly that might be set up. Finally, we're in the middle of the college football transfer portal. Let me just give you this take. College football transfer portal combined with ending restrictions on sitting out, have altered college football more significantly in conjunction with the NFL than anything that has happened in any of our lives as college football fans. I don't think most fans have truly recognized it. It used to be signing day was a big deal in college football because you would get guys typically for three or four years when they signed. Now everybody is going to be going into the transfer portal after one year. They're all going to be seeking as much money as they possibly can. I think there's more demand, go figure, for money than there is money to go to the players because, frankly, most players are not worth that much. Most players are not worth much more than a scholarship. Some examples of that not being true. But I believe as we go forward and contemplate where we are headed from here, uh, that the college football transfer portal has effectively unleashed the free market in a monster way in college football. And some people didn't get this analogy, but I I think it's true. We used to have the Berlin Wall uh, separating East and West Germany. Berlin Wall has come down. And there are no restrictions at all. We've gone from communism to unfettered capitalism almost overnight. College football coaches have had this for a long time. You've heard me talk about it a lot over the years because college football coach could decide, hey, if Nick Saban had wanted to take the Auburn job, he could have. There would have been criticism, but there was no restriction Nick Saban leaving Alabama and taking over at Auburn. Doesn't exist in very many places. Well, now players have the exact same amount of freedom that coaches do. You have a good year as a coach, go take that next job. Segwaying to uh, now players have it too and Deion Sanders epitomizes both of these angles. Deion has left Jackson State. 
He has taken over as the new head coach of the Colorado Buffaloes. Uh, he said that he's going to hit the transfer portal hard. Uh, he said he was bringing luggage with him, and it was Louis, Louis Vuitton. Uh, he told a lot of the players on Colorado's team right now, it's time for you to go. Uh, and he has reinvigorated a great deal of energy into that program. Now, how much will he be able to turn over the roster? It'll be fascinating. How well is he going to do as a coach? Also equally fascinating. Um, but we already saw with Lincoln Riley being able to get Caleb uh, Williams and Jordan Addison, how much difference you can see, not to mention many other transfers, in one year you can basically remake an entire roster. So we'll see what happens going forward, uh, but I think we are just now starting to contemplate the Berlin Wall coming down for college athletics and how much different it is going to be going forward. All right, a lot of depth, a lot of discussion there. I appreciate all of you. DBAP, unless you need to SBAP, I am Clay Travis. This has been Outkick the Show. I will see you guys tomorrow. I may see you on television tonight. Appreciate all of you. See ya.